Well, with that, I'm going to have you turn with me to Matthew 6.13. Matthew 6.13, we're just considering one verse today, and while you're finding that text, I'll pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Oh, how safe we feel when we say the words, open our Bibles. How cared for, how cherished, how protected, how surrounded we are with your love when we have an open Bible. And how much more when the Bible is explained, when it is revealed to us, when the truths are unpacked, how safe we are under the banner of your truth. We ask you, Lord, to enliven our minds this morning to understand the word, open our, our hearts that we may understand your word, and let us be those that apply your word with diligence this day. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We're very blessed as Christians to have received a gift. And that gift is described in 2 Peter 1.3 that we have, according to Peter, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the full knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. We lack no spiritual resource. Everything that is available to the Christian is given to every Christian. There are no higher level Christians. There are no lower level Christians. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And we celebrate that and we, we exult in that. But never should this access to all that pertains to life and godliness make you unaware of the deceptions that fly all around. And never should you think that you inherently possess the spiritual acumen and wisdom to discern truth from error and and certainly to keep yourself from falling prey to various spiritual deceptions. There really is a sense in which the only safe place spiritually is to continually present yourself to God as inadequate. That's the safe place. To throw yourself on the fact that you're in Christ and only in Christ are you able to withstand the flaming darts of the evil one The very nature of spiritual deception is well described by the word itself. It is deceptive. The reason that those that are confronted concerning deception, which is not true, the reason they become angry and defensive is because they think it is true. No deceived person says, I know I'm being deceived, but I kind of like it. Nobody says that. They defend it. Along those lines, today I want to continue our mini-series on how to pray in power. And I want to address the power of inadequacy. The power of inadequacy, the power of seeking God's mercies when it comes to keeping your spiritual eyes wide open. And now, Jesus concludes the disciples' prayer, Matthew 6, 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you're reading the Legacy Standard Bible with me, it includes a bracketed section with a wonderful poetic doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's, it's bracketed because there's quite a bit of doubt as to whether this was in the original autograph, the, the manuscript of Matthew's gospel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time belaboring the point. 
but it's completely lacking in the oldest and most uh, major manuscripts of Matthew. In later manuscripts in which it does appear, there's so many variations to it that it's impossible to tell which one was the original, even if it was in the oldest manuscripts. There's pretty decent evidence that this doxology, this ending here and all the variations of it, that these were used in the early church as a public liturgical conclusion to the disciples' prayer. And it became so well known that scribes or copyists of the New Testament manuscripts began adding it in. All in all, it's actually a wonderful theological statement. There's just, we'll just take the tactic that conservatively we won't consider it because it's likely not part of the original text. But even the actual text, do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil, has some interpretive challenges to it. Now, I want to address those this morning before broadening our consideration to a wider field. Is Jesus saying that we should pray for God to not lead us into a situation in which we're tempted to sin? Is that what he's saying? Well, that can't be the case. James 1, 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So we can eliminate that possibility. The word translated temptation is a generic word. It can mean temptation or it can mean testing or trial without reference to how someone responds to that testing or trial. For example, if you have a flat tire, that is a spiritual test. If you become attracted to the option of becoming sinfully angry, that test has now become a temptation. And we can't say that Jesus is only speaking of tests because the temptation is qualified with the opposite, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. So there is a component of desiring to be kept from evil. And in fact, in the New Testament, We're told that we will face trials and that we're to do so with joy. We see this in James 1, 1 Corinthians 10. So it's not God that may lead us into a situation of temptation, but neither is this just a non-threatening spiritual test of some sort. So how do we answer this? Well, there's merit to seeing this as Jesus saying, let us not be brought into temptation by the evil one by Satan and his deceptions. And in fact, we we get this translation help in the Legacy Standard Bible, deliver us from the evil one. Let me put it to you this way. What you're asking for is to be protected from situations which would put you in a a situation to have to spiritually fight to to defeat temptation. Instead, we're asking to just avoid those situations altogether if possible. To just stay away from it. It's the idea here of not trusting yourself, not trusting your inherent spiritual acumen or power, but knowing that were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit and your fully confessed inadequacy before God, that you too could be swept up in any number of deceptions. And the numbers of warnings in the New Testament against spiritual deception certainly attest to this concern. Just a couple of them here. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We see similar warnings in Mark 14, 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
In Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So, do you possess all things pertaining to life and godliness? Yes, you do. And therefore, should you then be spiritually relaxed? Should you be spiritually easygoing about spiritual things, particularly things that can lead to deception and sin and error? No, you should not. We don't have an easygoing attitude. As you read through the New Testament, there's just a crescendo and an urgency and a pleading as you go closer and closer to the end of the New Testament to watch out for deception, watch out for false teachers, watch out for false doctrine. It fairly shouts at us toward the end. So what's the answer? Yes, you possess all things pertaining to life and godliness. No, you should not be relaxed. The answer is the power of inadequacy. Of confessing to the Lord that it's only His grace and His power that protects. And toward that end, I'd like to widen our lens quite a bit and take this to a more global understanding because what we see here is our request to deliver us from the evil one. And I'd like to give us an understanding of the schemes of the evil one, Satan, and precisely what it is you're asking to avoid. I want to look at the deceptions that Satan can foist upon people. So we're going to, we're going to kind of widen our view here. Revelation 12:9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is most likely at the midpoint of the great tribulation that's coming. The congregation of Christ, the church, has been taken out of the world and now the time of trouble on the earth has begun and now Satan's access to heaven to accuse the saints, that's come to an end. He's thrown down. So what does Satan do? What is he doing right now? He's attempting to deceive the whole world. And how does Satan accomplish this deception of the whole world? In lightweight evangelicalism, as well as in charismatic and Pentecostal and prosperity gospel circles, the deception of Satan is presented almost as a cartoon of sorts. It's a caricature. I was looking at that bowl of ice cream. Satan tried to trick me into eating it. But I rebuked him in Jesus' name and I walked away. Satan didn't want to give me, have me give this $100 to the church, and I, I was tempted, but I resisted the devil, and I wrote that check anyway. That is a very cartoonish view of Satan. One of Satan's deceptions is to have people minimize his role as some sort of supernatural mosquito that you have to swat away on occasion. What I'd like to show you is the deception of Satan is encapsulated in his imitation of the very truths that make the difference between heaven and hell. Imitations all centered on God himself or on important things that God ordained and created. And how does he accomplish this? In 2 Corinthians 11, 12 and, or 13 through 14 says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So how does Satan accomplish his work of imitating God himself or the important things God has ordained and created? He accomplishes this by disguise. 
And I'd like to show you six disguises which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. This is what we're praying against. The first disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world, the person of God. The person of God. This has to be at the top of the list. Satan imitates God the Father. Jesus said in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. I want you to notice this. God is truth. Satan is the father of lies. Satan is a twisted father who is deceiving his children to reject the gospel of Christ and to thus spend eternity away from God separated from God, forever bearing the consequences of their sin and rebellion. Satan imitates God the Father. Satan imitates God the Son. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Peter warned in 2 Peter 2, 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, I want you to know this. Peter says these representatives of Satan who deny the master of Christ are denying the master who bought them. It, it seems on the surface, at least to indicate these false teachers are saved. But that can't be for two reasons. First of all, Peter's indicating clearly that these are men who are part of the church. They're in the church. They've heard the gospel of Christ. They've even outwardly professed faith in Christ. In other words, salvation was offered to them, but they've rejected it. The second reason, Jesus clearly stated in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does this mean that Jesus will deny them before the Father? It means, listen carefully, that the work of Christ to provide mediation and intercession will not be applied to these. It won't be applied to these men. And if the Son of God will not intercede for you, then you are lost. Satan imitates God the Father. He imitates God the Son. Satan imitates God the Spirit. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This word work is is the same word often used in the New Testament to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit. Even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is imitated by Satan but for his nefarious purposes. Luke 22.3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, the backstabbing disciple one of the twelve, the one who would betray Christ. Satan imitates the person of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's a second disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. Not only the person of God, but the proclamations of God. The proclamations of God. At the top of this list has to be the fact that Satan wants to distort and twist the gospel. Paul gave the Galatian Church, as sharp a rebuke and scolding as you'll see anywhere in the New Testament. Paul said in Galatians 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort to the gospel of Christ. I want to stop right there. This is not an other complete 
turning from all the truth. This is a distortion. This is a twisting. This is a slight out-of-focus version. What does he go on to say? But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to him, to, to you rather, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. This is serious stuff. We don't get to mess with the gospel. Second Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul said that we don't alter the truth. We don't mess with it. Satan doesn't put his primary emphasis, listen carefully, on trying to do the opposite of the gospel. His goal is to distort, to vary, to slightly change the gospel. There are buildings all over the world that call themselves churches, and they give people a sense of belonging, of purpose, of togetherness. And they avoid the true biblical gospel so that these people who belong together and have purpose together and are all together can die in their sin together. This is why gospel truths must be reiterated. They must be proclaimed. They must be taught. They must be memorized. They must be understood. They must be repeated. Gospel implications in any and every text of Scripture when it's preached and taught must be extrapolated and explained. We need to be continually saturated in the doctrine of grace. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to be saturated in the doctrine of election. That Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. We need to be saturated in the doctrine of the atonement. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We need to be saturated in the doctrine of the divine calling. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We need the doctrine of conversion. Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We need the doctrine of regeneration. The John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need the doctrine of union with Christ. Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must be saturated in these. And I'm not going to stop there. We need the doctrine of justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We need the doctrine of sanctification to be set apart to God. We need the doctrine of positional sanctification. Hebrews 10.10 By this we have been, past tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We need the doctrine of progressive sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 That we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We need the doctrine of perfected sanctification. 
1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we, now we are children of God and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We need the doctrines of preservation and perseverance. 1 Peter 1, 5, We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We need the doctrine of glorification. That Romans 8.30 teaches us, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. But you see, Satan would have you believe you just need to love Jesus. The doctrines of grace must be preeminent. Satan would have you not knowing these truths. Why? Because when you know them, it puts deception to death. But Satan would also, still under the proclamations of God, he would do all he can to distract the world from the preached word of God, from expository preaching, which explains and applies the truths of God from the singular source that we have, the Bible. Deuteronomy 31, 11 through 13. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. I want you to just listen. It gives us the formula for a life based on the preached word of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 11. And I'll make some emphases to help you. When all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the little ones, and the sojourner who is within your gates, so that they may hear and so that they may learn and fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God all the days you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Now let me boil this down. This is a formula for living a life based on the proclamation and the preaching of the word. Reading, hearing, learning, fearing, obeying, and living. Satan has so many methods to keep people from the preached word of God. Let me give you a few. He has the distracted pulpit. The distracted pulpit preaching aimed at church growth. Preaching aimed at making everyone feel emotionally good. Church growth preaching, by the way, is a whole subset of preaching technique. There are books written on it. It scoffs at expository preaching. It leans heavily on storytelling, emotional encouragement, empathy, and an easy version of the gospel that anyone would want to hear. Anyone wants to join the church. This is preaching which tries to minimize the differences between the Christian and the non-Christian. No, true preaching says there is a gulf, it's called hell, between the Christian and the non-Christian. The distracted pulpit. Here's another scheme Satan uses, the distracted life. The distracted life. Satan would just love to keep your family in a pattern of distraction where you just can't get in the groove, can't get in the habit of being highly integrated into the life of the church where you miss 25 and 30 and 50% of the sermons in the preaching series designed for you to hear all of them. Where your intake of the Word of God is just constantly hit and miss, hit and miss. There's a third scheme, the distracted pastor. The distracted pastor. Satan would love for churches to make certain their pastors are doing everything possible such that the Word of God is the last priority. 
Satan desires for a weariness of study, a weariness of preaching to set into men of God such that they're kept busy with a thousand other things and begin to slip in the pulpit. It's sad to me when churches report their pastors getting weaker in the pulpit. No, they should be getting stronger because you're learning and growing and being more powerful in the word because you understand it better. I love 1 Timothy 4.15. I lean on this. Let your progress be made known to all. Sometimes this is the pastor's fault because he won't make study a priority. Sometimes it's others' fault because they won't respect that priority. Here's a fourth scheme to keep you from the preached word. The distracted heart. The distracted heart. There's a reason that 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 prescribes the heart attitude of church members toward their pastors as that which gives respect and esteem and high regard in love. One great reason is this. The moment you stop respecting, the moment you stop esteeming in love, your ears become stopped up because you don't want to hear from them anymore. Here's a fifth scheme of the devil to keep you from preaching the distracted mind. The distracted mind. We fight the fight against distraction when the word of God is being preached, don't we? We attempt to fight off every distraction we possibly can in the design and even the place of our worship service. We fight it off. If there are still cell phones in the millennial kingdom, may lightning strike that phone when the word of God is preached. I was listening to a pastor once preaching and his phone rang, which wasn't so bad except he answered it. Each of you is in a battle against distraction even as you listen right now. To learn to be fully engaged for a mere hour of preaching is almost beyond our capacity in the 21st century. And what do all of these have in common? They attack, listen carefully, they attack at the early parts of the formula of Deuteronomy 31. They attack at the reading, the hearing, and the learning phases so that Satan may stop the fearing, obeying, and living part. There's a third disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world, the people of God. The people of God. Satan puts forward imitation people of God at three different levels. Level one, imitation Christians. Imitation Christians. Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds in which Jesus said the kingdom is like a field in which both wheat and weeds spring up together. The weeds look very much like the wheat, the false believers mixed in with the true. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six said one of the great dangers he faced in the gospel ministry was from the false brothers, pseudodelphois, the pseudo-brothers. He describes in Galatians 2, 4, but this was because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. Enslave us to what? To a false gospel. Jesus himself gave the great warning of judgment to the false believers in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. If any professing Christian thinks there are not fakes in the church, you need to have your head examined and open your Bibles. Because they are here and they are there. Level two of this imitation, imitation shepherds. Imitation shepherds, we already saw that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 
The very next verse is harder for us to believe. Therefore, it is not surprising if his, Satan's, ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. John warns in 2 John verses 10 and 11 that those who teach anything other than the biblical gospel, what are you to do with them? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one that gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. But this guy who's, who's been teaching me and who's been showing people this slightly off gospel, I'm sure he's off on a few points here and there. And, and you know, it's, it's close. It's 90%. He's such a nice guy. I've been friends with him for years. Well, do you believe Second John 10 and 11 or not? It's a really simple choice. You warn them, and if they will not heed the warning, you say, I don't want to be anywhere near you. You say, oh, that sounds hard. Take it up with the Apostle John. That's what he said. Why is that? You remember, Christians and non-Christians are not barely close together. There is an eternal gulf between them, and we must point that out. Imitation shepherds. Here's a third level of this deception Imitation churches. Imitation churches. In both Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, Jesus calls whole groups in the church who are false believers together a synagogue of Satan. Those who claim to be worshipers of God as very religious people, but as a group they are false and serve their father, the devil. You know, I've talked to pastors, and often, more often than not, they're young pastors who are thrust into a situation where they blink and find themselves pastoring a church of a thousand people. And all of a sudden, over time, they begin to realize that 800 of them probably aren't even in Christ. And they ask this question, what do I do with a church that I basically don't like? Well, you got two choices. Choice number one, preach the gospel till all the unbelievers either get saved or leave, or you leave. Those are the two options. Roman Catholicism is an imitation church. The Catholic Catechism teaches, quote, that all men may attain, <clears throat> may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. In other words, salvation is attained by being a good person. That's a false church. Roman Catholicism abandoned the biblical gospel, abandoned the sole authority many centuries ago with a terrible history of straying further and further from the truth. The 8th century, they authorized the worship of icons and statues. Again, in the 8th century, we saw the rise of corrupt popes. In the 12th century, priests were forbidden to marry. In the 13th century, they invented the doctrine of transubstantiation, that Jesus is literally in the elements of the Lord's table. In the 13th century, they invented the need to confess sin to a priest in order to maintain your salvation. In the 15th century, they invented the doctrine of purgatory, this post-death chance at salvation. In the 16th century, original sin and the doctrine of justification by faith alone were rejected. And I could go on and on. They are so far from the truth now, they're not a church. They're a false church. Ironically, in the 20th century, at the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church declared itself the only way of salvation. They're close. The only way of salvation is to get out of the Catholic Church. It's an imitation church. It bears no resemblance to the faith of the New Testament. There's a fourth disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world, the praise of God. The praise of God. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 21 and 22, Paul warned those who were still participating in pagan rituals and sacrifices from their previous lives and coming to the church and partaking in the Lord's table. He warned them. He said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I want you to know this. Listen very carefully. False worship is demonic. It is demonic. It originates with Satan who yearns to be worshipped. In the church today, how does the praise of God get subtly altered? The theologically rich songs of our faith get slowly replaced with songs about how we feel about God. Truth gets replaced with repetitious lines which paint God not as holy, holy, holy God, but as relevant and desperate and you really need me, God. The songs begin to focus on making the lost person feel saved instead of presenting truth, which is in stark contrast to the lost person's spiritual condition. The Lord's table, it loses its gravity and weightiness when it's taken from a ritualistic heart or perhaps worse, without the appropriate significance of examining one's heart before partaking. Listen, many Puritan pastors used to operate what they might call a closed table. That if you didn't give salvation testimony to the elders, you weren't allowed to take the Lord's table. It's not a bad idea. The prayers of our worship have begun to focus on Jesus as my buddy and my pal, trying to create this informal hangout friend picture of Jesus instead of remembering that the people of God are to fear God and are to bow before His majesty. The preached word is radically transformed into an intentionally informal event meant to demonstrate how cute and relevant and amazing and funny the preacher is. The word sermon has all but been abandoned for substitute words like teaching or chat or heart-to-heart or conversation. This is not a conversation. This is God speaking through his word and you listening. That's not a conversation. The offerings to God are emphasized not as a sacrificial gift to God, but as a way to to get God to give you more money. The prescribed scripture reading in worship has gotten shorter and shorter until the norm is to make sure to not take time to read more than a couple of verses at a time because heaven forbid your people might get bored with the Bible. I've never done this yet, but I keep threatening in my own heart to show up to a Sunday evening service and read the one entire sermon that is recorded in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and then close in prayer. I'm not going to tell you when it happens. We're just going to do it one of these days. (laughs) But worst of all, the heart attitude of the worshiper has slowly been transformed from a heart which is to be bowed down to a heart which is lifted up and self-exalting. Expecting worship to be something that's primarily a consumer experience designed to please me. There's a fifth disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. The preeminence of God. The preeminence of God. As Americans, we're not very familiar with the idea of a monarchy. One thing we are familiar with is we tend to think of kings as oppressive and a dangerous idea mainly because kings are sinners and we know that power corrupts. We understand that. And because kings are sinners throughout history, monarchs have abused their power to become dictators, not kings. 
resulting in death and cruelty and tyranny. This has repeated itself in history countless times. But it can't be denied that there's something in the human spirit that yearns for a righteous king. Not an oppressive, corrupt king, but a a king that would protect us, a king that would unite us, a king who is a rallying point. I believe that the presidential elections in our country are so enthralling to us because it's the closest thing we have to the inauguration of a king. How do I know that something in the human spirit yearns for a king? Because the entire point of the Bible is that a king is coming to reign over humanity. A human king with the divine attributes of God. A king who is perfectly wise and strong and loving and just. We're even commanded to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether you knew it or not, you were born as part of a kingdom. You were born a kingdom citizen, but you were a citizen of the invisible realm of David, you, uh, of Satan, rather. You were a, a child of what one theologian called the child of the living devil. Satan is jealous of the kingdom of God. He longs to be the king. To a certain extent, he is the king at this moment as the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world. But the Holy Spirit... As part of the Father's plan for you, He plucked you out of your own sin and your citizenship changed. It changed. Colossians 1.13, that God rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to, to the kingdom of the Son of His love. But you know what the challenge is. The challenge is, is that we all live in enemy territory, don't we? We all live behind enemy lines. You're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ living in a world that's ruled by the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And how Satan longs to be king. As the current king of this world, he leads the rulers of the nations into rebellion and wickedness. The nations rage and plot against God with their dark and evil actions, moving ever more toward the satanic goal of a completely godless world. But as we did last Sunday evening, we take hope from Psalm 2, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Let me give you one more disguise which Satan puts forward to deceive the whole world. The power of God. The power of God. In the 1980s and 90s, men like John Wimber and C. Peter Wagner were at the forefront of what was later called the Signs and Wonders Movement. This originated with, as part of the Calvary Chapel Movement, part of Fuller Theological Seminary. The entire focus of faith now became centered on receiving and seeing miracles, helped along, of course, by closed auditoriums, loud musical instruments played for hours at a time to provide a hypnotic lowering of emotional defenses. Wimber and Wagner did seminars and services all over the world, and the byword was power. And anyone who didn't receive massive power from God was considered lacking in faith. Sadly, they were helped along tremendously by Dr. Jack Deere, who forsook his evangelical roots as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and turned instead into really the leading so-called theologian of the Signs and Wonders movement 
He wrote a book that took the pseudo-Christian world by storm called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Here is a seminary professor saying, I'm on board with Wimber and Wagner. Now, the Signs and Wonders movement isn't what it used to be because they couldn't deliver the goods consistently and continually had to struggle for anything that appeared to be a real miracle. But the impact on Christianity has been massive and it continues to this day. In fact, so much of this movement has spilled outside the boundaries of charismatic and Pentecostal churches into broader evangelicalism that many people don't even realize that in the church, elements of that movement still exist. And on the surface, it sounds exciting that you should have an experience with Jesus. You should feel the power of the Spirit. And that preaches really well. And when somebody's in a vulnerable state, particularly after having been emotionally drained by really loud music, bright lights, a, a, a loud auditorium, and so forth, they can be deceived into thinking they have met the risen Lord when in fact they've just met an emotion with the name of Jesus in it. It sounds exciting, but you know what gets lost in that heresy? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The God is couched in terms of existing to give you things and to do things for you. And the answer is prayer based in ritual or emotion. You know what the greatest miracle of all is? The greatest miracle of all is that a holy God would reach down to humanity by the means of the death and resurrection of Christ to pay for your sins and transfer you from a hater of God to an eternal worshiper of God. That's the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle of all is that you've received the very life of God in you. Whenever anybody says, I promise you power from God, run the other way because the power is in the gospel. Not in any what one man can promise you. But Satan would have a humanity that believes a counterfeit power of God and it has dire eternal consequences. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And not to discourage you, but this is only going to ramp up. It's only going to get worse. The coming of Antichrist in the future will be marked by, guess what? Miracles. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 8, says, And then that lawless one, that is Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. By the way, do you see how important it is that there are mass quantities of miracles that Jesus performed? Healing organic disease completely, always healing totally, healing observable maladies such as blindness and deafness and paralysis, miracles of nature, and oh yes, just a side note, raising the dead. Here's the real signs and wonders movement. John 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Verse 25 of chapter 21, There are also many other things which Jesus did. Oh, I love this. This is, this is spiking the football in the end zone. 
which if they were written one after another, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Written about what? About the countless number of miracles that Jesus did. So Satan's movements in this world are disguises on a massive level to deceive. He imitates the person of God, the proclamations of God, the people of God, the praise of God, the preeminence of God, and the power of God. Now, if you're feeling a little bit intimidated, you might ask the question, what do I do? What do I turn to? You take part in the power of inadequacy. You pray as Jesus taught, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I've purposely couched it in these terms. Do you hear the paradox? The paradox is that the way to have power against the evil one is to first run to the Lord in prayer as the one with no power. You have no power. He has all the power. We serve an all-powerful God, an omnipotent God. We run to the one who is the truth and we're protected with the truth. I can't think of a better way to leave us this morning than with a thought provided by God through the pen of Paul, an extended commentary, by the way, on do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you want to teach Matthew 6, 13, let me read you Paul's commentary on do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here's his commentary. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist an evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit. And to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Where is the power? It is in the Lord, His strength, God, God, the Spirit, God and the Spirit. The power of inadequacy says that you may sink to your knees and as Psalm 5 says, you were a shield all around me. And you ask the Lord to graciously keep you from those ways that Satan would lead you astray, and he will. He will always answer that prayer. Amen. Our Father, we come to you now trembling in one way because we know we are spiritually helpless in our own power. We have no spiritual power. We have no spiritual acumen. We, we, we can't even control that we whether we keep on breathing or not. And yet you have provided for us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You have surrounded us as with a shield. You have promised to deliver us from the evil one. 
We praise you that we serve your Son who proclaim that He is the way and the truth. We love your truth, O Lord. We're comforted by it. We're protected by it. May many who have heard a distorted gospel hear the true call of Christ to the cross, the gospel of repentance, the gospel of regeneration and justification and sanctification and glorification. May those who are deceived into thinking they're in Christ because they did something religious or they've had an experience or they've gone through something approximating a Bible study, may you open their eyes as demonstrated in Second Corinthians 4 that you have shown into our hearts the light of Christ. Protect us from the evil one. Help us to be standard bearers for the truth until the one who is the truth returns and we praise him in person. It's in his name we pray. Amen.